beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me start by asking the children a question. Children, if you were a fish, where would it be better for you to be? In the ocean or in the desert? What's a better place for a fish to be? In the ocean or in the desert? And I think that we all know the answer, don't we? A fish belongs in the ocean. Which was created to live in the water. Outside of the water means death to the fish. Well, man was created to live in the ocean of God's glory. Man was put into a creation which declares the glory of God. Man was made after the image of God to reflect the glory of God. The psalmist says that man was crowned with glory and honor. He swam, he lived, he was immersed, he was surrounded by the ocean, the infinite ocean of God's glory in his creation. He was clothed in glory, and that's why he was naked, but he was not ashamed. But into that ocean of glory, the devil dangled a lure. The devil said, are you serious? You want to swim around in this limitations? You want to stay in the ocean? There's more to life. You need freedom. You shouldn't be constrained by the ocean. You need to know ocean and not ocean. You need to know good and evil. And we, in our first parents, we said, you know what, that sounds like a really good idea. And we took the bait, and you know where we ended up, gasping on the hot sands of the desert of the destruction of our sin, our fall. We turned God's glory into shame, Man, says the scripture, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all that's left is dryness and dust. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. Cut off from the glory of God, cut off from life. Man spends his short life in a desert of sin-caused brokenness and loneliness and suffering, crawling around in the direction of the latest mirage which offers the illusion of relief and hope and comfort. But every time man tries to jump into the next mirage of an oasis, he ends up again with a mouthful of sand. And the whole scripture is the story of how sin is falling short of the glory, how sin cuts us off from God, and how God in Christ 
is bringing us back home. What does the scripture say about what the Lord Jesus did, is doing? That he is bringing many sons to glory. And over and over, in the Old Testament, God teaches his people the same thing. That without God, there's dryness, there's darkness, and there's death. That with God, there's life, and there's life in abundance. There is light, and there is glory. When we look at the book of the prophet Isaiah, we see in the first 39 chapters, a lot of judgment. There are some flashes of light, some promises of salvation. We heard about that last week from Isaiah chapter 9. But there's a lot of hard words which remind the people that away from God is death and desert and destruction. We get to chapter 39. We read it together. And chapter 39 prophesies that the end is coming for Judah. When Isaiah's prophesying these things in chapter 39, chapter 40, the northern tribes have already been taken into captivity, into exile. And now he prophesies that the end is coming for Judah too. The measure of her sins will be filled up. In the next hundred 150 years more or less, the next hundred, or a little bit more than 100 years, things are going to get worse and worse in Judah until finally we, we read in Ezekiel how bad things get. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 8, for instance, you, you read about people in the temple of God worshiping creepy, crawly, nasty, horrible demons, turning their backs on the Holy of Holies and worshiping the sun right there in the temple. All kinds of foul things happening. And so... Israel, Judah, will be brought into captivity. If you open your Bible to Lamentations chapter 1, you'll see how Jerusalem will be when that judgment of God comes upon her. How lonely, says Lamentations chapter 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. That's what's going to happen about a hundred years after Isaiah is prophesying here. And what is astonishing in our text is that more than a century before the Babylonian exile even begins, Isaiah begins to proclaim and prophesy the end. God hasn't even started punishing Jerusalem with the exile. But Isaiah is already 
delighting in proclaiming restoration and forgiveness. And he does it in terms which take our breath away as we read through the second half of the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 on. He prophesies restoration and forgiveness and renewal, not just for a tiny remnant, but he prophesies of, of a glorious salvation in cosmic and universal terms. You know, he didn't even really understand totally what he was talking about. Open your Bible for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 10. See what Peter says about Isaiah and the other prophets. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets said, Lord, we're prophesying all these things. We'd really like to know some more details about it. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Isaiah sometimes is prophesying things and he has no idea what the full import of it is. But we know because the Holy Spirit spoke through him to write these words down for us who live in the latter days. Now, Isaiah didn't know everything that he was saying, but he knew that it was good. The prophecy of Isaiah uses language so sublime, so exalted, so Christ-filled, that it has been called the fifth gospel. And in Old Testament language and terms, this book speaks of, of Christ and his birth and his suffering, his death and his glory, and even gives faint sketches of the new heavens and the new earth and eternal glory. So here we are in chapter 40, we're around the year 700 or 710 before Christ. The northern kingdom was taken into exile within the last decade or two. Judah will soon be taken into exile. The temple will be destroyed in 586 B.C., well, that's still more than 100 years in the future. But already God preaches comfort so that the faithful remnant will have something to hold on to, some hope to hold on to as they go through the coming troubles and distress. And those of you who love listening to the Messiah will recognize the words of our text as the very first words of that magnificent oratorio of Handel. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says your God. You know, sometimes parents have to discipline a disobedient child. And it's not pleasant. And often as a parent, when by God's grace you're not too angry, often as a parent you just want to forgive and, and say it's all done. But we know that in certain situations, the child has to learn the consequences of their actions. And so there, there needs to be some kind of punishment. But after the punishment, if it's godly 
punishment. If it's loving correction, then at the end, there's the best part. There's the reconciliation. There's the restoration. There's the hug. There's the saying, it's all over. It's done. It's dealt with. The relationship is restored. And that's what God is saying in our text. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that it's over. Now who has to do this? Who has to say this? Who is God talking to? The, the verb is in the plural. Lots of people have to speak comfort to God's people. He's saying, comfort, comfort, you guys, comfort my people. God has a general message of hope and restoration and salvation, not just going to be said by one person at one time, but by lots of people at lots of times. And it's urgent. There's the repetition. It's for emphasis and for urgency. When the Holy Spirit repeats words, we pay attention. When the Holy Spirit says something once, we pay attention. When he says it twice, we pay more attention. Comfort. Comfort, my people. Says who? That's a really a good question, right? Says who? Well, says your God. And who is God? Elohim is the word used here. And it reminds us of Genesis chapter 1 when, when the scriptures speak about the creation of the heavens and the earth. It uses the name of the almighty God, Elohim, the almighty, the powerful, the creator. That's the one who is saying, comfort my people. But it's not just the creator God. It's your God. Your covenant God. Your loving God. Your faithful God. The God of unconditional love. The God who says, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, a God who holds out his hands to sinners who are unworthy and keeps holding out his hands and calling them. A God who says to a people, that are unworthy sinners. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. A God who is not just a loving God, willing to forgive you, but also a mighty God who is able to forgive so almighty, so exalted, so powerful, so sovereign, so that as we read further in the chapter in verse 15, the nations to him are like a drop in a bucket. They're like dust on the scales. And as we read further in the chapter, verse 22 and 23, he looks down from up on high, and the people down on the little globe of the earth look like tiny Insects. 
He reduces human rulers to nothing. And then look at verse 26 of our chapter. Lift up your eyes and see who he is. He is the God who is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven. He knows each of the stars, each of the angels by name. And there are billions and billions and trillions of them. Look at verse 28 of our chapter. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This is your God. This is your God who says, comfort, comfort my people. And speak tenderly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. You know what it says literally in the Hebrew? It says, speak to her heart. Speak to her heart. You know, Scripture repeatedly tells us that God is a God who is ready to forgive, who is gracious who is merciful, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who does not forsake or abandon his people. Time and time again, the people of God have turned away from life. They've chosen death. They've turned their backs on the ocean of God's glory. They've insisted on crawling through the dry and the dusty desert of sin in search of mirages which promise them everything but deliver them nothing. All they get, we read it over and over in the Old Testament, all they get is another mouthful of sand, shame, suffering. You know, parents know this. I think we all know it from our childhood. Sometimes when a child just insists on disobedience, just insists on going their own way, sometimes you need to let them go. Because they're not marionettes. You can't control their hearts and their bodies and their minds. Sometimes they need to learn the hard way. They need to to taste the bitter fruit of their foolish choices. And it breaks your heart as a parent. You see them mess up. You, You see them learn the hard way. You see them take a face plant. And they're hurting. But then you're there. Not with, I told you so. Not with judgment. But with love. With compassion. And with forgiveness. Because you reflect the image of God. The one who has his arms wide open. Who stretches out his arms to his disobedient people. The one who runs to meet his prodigal son. And rejoices over his return. So here is the Lord. Yahweh. The God who has marked his people with a covenant sign. You belong to me. And he is saying. It's over. Your warfare. Your hard service. It's ended. You've tasted the consequences of your decisions. It's over. It's enough. 
More than enough. You are forgiven. You know, when we look at the end of verse 2, you see she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Just uh, kind of a superficial reading might make us think, well, that's not very good. Does that mean so they sinned and then God punished them twice as much as they should have been punished? Isn't that kind of unjust? Well, that certainly would be unjust. But that's not what this text is saying, because God isn't unjust by any stretch of the imagination. What this means, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It means that this is enough. This is more than enough. No more, says God. And then a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. And we would expect that it should say, In the wilderness prepare the way of the people so that they can come back from Babylon and that they can move back to the promised land through the desert. But it doesn't say that. You look back in chapter 35, it speaks in glorious terms of the way that God will bring people from all over on a highway in which the redeemed shall walk through the desert in which he will make pools come into being and they will come back to the promised land. But here, here it's the way of the Lord which is in focus. The in the olden days, in the ancient days, kings would send troops ahead of them to prepare the way. Before the Romans, the Assyrians, who were the world power at the time that uh, Isaiah is prophesying, they were the major road builders. And, and they weren't roads like we have today, which kind of last a little longer. They were made, and then let's say a year or two later, the king would come by again and with his troops, and he would have to send people ahead to fill in the parts that had fallen away and, and to cut through the, the brambles and the stuff that had grown over the way. It was like very common in the olden days, in the ancient days, for troops to go ahead of the king to make the way smooth. And so God is coming back to Jerusalem, and the way must be prepared for him. And we have to ask ourselves, well, if he's coming back, that, meant he, that means he left. But when did he leave? We don't have time to look at it in detail. But just before the exile of Judah, we read in Ezekiel, especially in chapter 10, chapter 11, we read in Ezekiel of the point where Judah's sin is so foul and so wicked and so godless that the holiness of God, the holy presence of God, the glory of God comes out of the temple, leaves the temple complex, goes east of the city, and goes away from Jerusalem. Ichabod, Ichavot in Hebrew, the glory has departed from Israel. That's a horrifying thing because, because the tabernacle way back in Moses' day was a place where the glory of God could dwell in the midst of his people in a safe way without killing them. The glory of God filled the tabernacle when it was inaugurated. So glorious was that that the, the priest and Moses couldn't even enter it at first. And later on when the temple was inaugurated, the same thing happened. A cloud of glory filled it because behind the curtain, embroidered with the cherubim, guardians of God's holiness and glory, dwelt the Shekinah, the glorious presence of God. The Holy of Holies was where God's glory dwelled in the midst 
of a sinful people. He was imminent. He was close to them. But it was a distant imminence. Because they couldn't come close. They could come near. But they could not enter. But he was there. But then before the exile. Like I said, we read that in Ezekiel chapter 10, chapter 11. Before the exile, the glory of God leaves. But now in our text in verse 3, he is making his way back. And look at verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Isn't that exciting? And so we would expect that when the exiles come back in in the 500s BC, and, and when the temple, the second temple is built, and it's finished in 516 BC, we would expect that the glory of God would fill it like it did the tabernacle and the first temple before it. You know what happens? You know what happens when they get back, when they build the temple over many decades, when it's finally finished in 516? You know what happens? Nothing. It's just a little temple. It's a bit of a shed, really. When the foundations were laid for it, the old people that still remember the, the, the real temple, the first one, they weep. Because it's nothing compared to the first. And when it's finished, no cloud of glory comes upon it or fills it. There's not even the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies that's gone missing. They got all the other uh, vessels and tools and so back from the Babylonians. But they don't get the Ark back. In the New Testament times when the Romans come into the temple, they come into the Holy of Holies and it's an empty room. So that second temple doesn't have a lot of glory. When the people are weeping at its foundation, what does the prophet Haggai say in verse 3 of chapter 2? He says, you know what? You remember the former glory of this house, but I'm telling you, the latter glory will be greater. I will fill this house with such glory that the latter glory will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. When? When does that second temple get the glory? When will the glory of the Lord finally be revealed? Well, the answer comes to us in Luke chapter 2, verse 9. Open your Bible there to Luke chapter 2, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds in the field, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then we look at verse 14. The heavens are filled with the multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. We open our Bible to John. John chapter 2. At verse 14. Sorry, John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does John say in his gospel? He says, The word became flesh, and he dwelt amongst us. Literally, the verb says, He tabernacled amongst us. And when we come to Luke chapter 3, John appears in the wilderness. 
And he begins his ministry preparing the way of the Lord. And he specifically, deliberately chooses the wilderness to do it. The evangelist reminds us of the words of our text. And the wilderness prepared the way of the Lord. So when will the glory of the Lord be revealed? Well, who was crucified on the cross? Paul says to the Corinthians, it was the Lord of glory. What does the apostle say to the Hebrews? That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And after he made purification, he sat down at the right hand of God in glory. We sang about it in Psalm 24, which speaks prophetically of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lift up your heads, O you gates, so that the King of glory may come in. We see him, says the letter to the Hebrews, crowned with glory and honor. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see finally the glory, the chavot, the glory of God being poured out and filling the temple again for the first time since the exile. But which temple? Not a temple made of stones, not a temple made with hands, but the temple of the Pentecostal church. The church of Pentecost. There are all kinds of languages. All kinds of nations. Because the glory of the Lord is revealed and all flesh sees it together. What happens at Pentecost is the fulfillment of what we read, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 60. Arise. Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And that, that's why the Lord Jesus gives the great commission. He says, go to all the nations. Make disciples of all the nations. And as the gospel goes out into all the world, things happen. Moses, when he was in the presence of God, his face would shine, it would become bright. And as the New Testament church spreads throughout all the earth and lives in the presence of a holy God and in the power of the Holy Spirit, in Christ and Christ in us. As that happens, then the glory of the Lord is spread throughout the world. You see, when we live in God's presence, in the presence of the Lord of glory, when he lives in our hearts, then we shine. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? The more we're in contact with him. The more we feed on him in the gospel and the sacraments, the more that he fills our hearts and lives, the more the brightness of the shining of the radiance of his glory grows and grows in our hearts, our lives, our families, our communities. And we are transformed from glory to glory after the image of Christ. And there out in the darkness, they can see that. They can see that. The darker things get, the brighter the church shines. Our text 
also comes with a warning, even as it prophesies this wonderful, wonderful hope for God's people. It says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert. Lift up the low places. Take down the high places. And the question that the Holy Spirit brings to us this morning is this. Are you preparing the way of the Lord? Is that happening in your life? Is that happening in your heart? Is that happening in your marriage? Is that happening in your family? Is that happening in our church? Or are we throwing up obstacles to the gospel and to the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives? My brother, my sister, why run after another mouthful of sand when God is ready to pour oceans of glory into your soul? You know, maybe you're sick of the desert. You're sick of the sand in your eyes and the dryness. You're sick of the sand in your mouth. You're sick of the mirages. And you say, Lord, you say with Moses, Lord, show me your glory. And God sends you his messengers who say comfort, comfort to you, who speak tenderly to your heart. God gives you godly parents. He gives you fellow believers. He gives you deacons. He gives you elders. He gives you teachers. He gives you ministers. He gives us each other. And in our various offices, we tell each other the gospel. We tell each other the good news. Comfort. Comfort. Speak tenderly. It's over. It's done. Your sin is paid for. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You are free in Christ. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And he is busy pouring glory into your life. He calls you, says the apostle, into his own kingdom and glory. He called you, says Paul, through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may look around you and you may say, well, I wonder about that. I don't see a lot of glory in my life or in the life of some of my loved ones. I see shame and I see suffering and I see hurt and I see brokenness, and I see weakness, and I see backsliding, and, and I see the power of sin and temptation. And I just wonder whether this is true. Now look at the last words of our text. Is it true, brothers and sisters? Well, who says it? The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the earth will be filled with his glory as surely as he lives. That's what God says to Moses in Numbers. Now, does God live? Does God exist? He certainly does. And as certainly as God exists, so certainly will the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
What does the prophet say? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is going to happen. It is happening. The Lord Jesus started it off when his glory burst into the darkness there in northern uh, Israel 2,000 years ago. And it's just getting better all the time. It's going to happen. The Bible says that the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will be the revelation of his glory in perfection. And when we see the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we see him face to face, then we will finally be back in our natural habitat, in that ocean of glory. We will glorify him and enjoy him forever. Amen.